Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Jeff, and I'm one of the shepherds here, and we are picking up in James chapter 5. Um, Zach did a great job last week just setting up this passage, and uh, if you remember, it was talking about some of the persecution that was coming to uh, the Jews and to the Christians, the Christian Jews, put those two together. Um, But as we jump into James 5, verses 7 to 12, uh, there's this this concept that is going to permeate through the whole thing, and it's going to come pretty evident evident, uh, quickly. The, The beginning starts off by saying, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And this idea of being patient is the type of thing where you can stop and look at the definitions of patience. You can give all kinds of illustrations about patience. You can go through all the the stories we might have of how we need to be patient. But I have no patience for that. So we're going to move on to the next verse. So in verse 8, now we can't do it quite that way, can we? What we can do, though, is we can take a look at it for just a second and, and see that he's starting a new idea from what he has just been talking about. Because of the persecutions, he then says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And this idea, by the way, um, I'm going to reach into the Old Testament just for a second so you can follow a logic pattern. The idea when someone says you need to be patient, it implies that you're not. This happens with Joshua. When Joshua Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt, and then he is uh, passing away, and Joshua is about to become the new leader, and literally God says to him, and the people say to him over and over and over again in Joshua, the very beginning it says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And again, I repeat, be strong and courageous. The reason why it needs to be said over and over is because he wasn't strong and courageous, that he literally needed that encouragement to be strong and courageous. This is why we need the word be patient. Because when we go through trials, when we go through struggles, when life seems to just be throwing all kinds of things at us and it's not going the way we anticipated and things aren't quite the way we want them to be, this answer from James right off the bat is, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, you might look at it and say, all right, I only have to be patient until the Lord comes. Once he comes, I no longer have to be patient again. That's a great way to look at it. Because at that point, when he comes again, we're talking about being in his presence. We're talking about being in heaven. But the concept is, is that you have to be patient at least until then. In other words, hold out until then. Give it your best until then. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, until his return. James, as you remember, is the brother of Jesus. And as he says this, he's remembering his brother when he finally gets that aha moment of who his brother really is. And he sees Jesus ascend and, and say that he's coming back. And this is what he's referring to when he says that. And he says, be patient, therefore, brothers until the coming of the Lord, until his return. And uh, we could do a whole talk just on that concept that many times in my mind, I've kind of put that aside. I'm not being patient until he returns. I've kind of forgotten the fact that he's going to return. I love to think about it sometimes, but there's a lot of days when I'm going, oh yeah, I remember that. And I go on and live my life and I'm not being patient until then. I'm being patient just with the day. And this is literally trying to get us in this mindset where we're thinking about that day, that day that he returns. And that's what we're being patient for. 
Not being patient for the little details of my life and what I might be thinking of and want to do, what might be coming up in my future, and I have goals and I have plans. The patience isn't for those things to come about. The patience is for the Lord to return. That's the longing that should be in each and every one of us. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he gives an example. In fact, it's the beginning of three examples. He starts off and he literally says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. He gives an example of a farmer and he's going to give an example of a prophet and he's going to give the example of Job. So we're going to come through these three examples and take them as as a way to try to teach us how to do this waiting until. So this first one, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Now, I don't know how many of you are farmers or have dabbled in your garden, but there's a whole different thing for us. We don't necessarily wait for the rains. We turn on the faucet. And in many cases, we have irrigation systems that come on automatically, and we don't even have to worry about them. That water just comes. And so this idea of waiting for the early and the late rains, it's like, yeah, we don't necessarily even do that. This is something that doesn't really apply to us. But I will tell you that when I read this verse, coming from Seattle and spending 10 years in Seattle, that idea of waiting for the early and the late rains means the rains in the morning and the late rains that come at night. That was rain every day. So the early and late rains means something different for somebody from Seattle. But when we talk about it here, it's not talking about that. It's literally talking about those rains in the fall, the early rains. After you've had a hot, dry summer, those early rains would be the time that the planting of the seeds, the seeds would begin to germinate and they would begin to sprout. And you could start all that work that you prepared for would now start to bear fruit. The sprouts would come and the season would start. So the farmer would wait for those early rains in the fall. All the way around to the the rains that would come in the spring. Now here's a catch on this phrase though. Is that in scripture this idea of the early and the late rains. It is used a couple of times in scripture and most often by God himself. He uses this phrase about the early and the late rains. So if you've got your Bibles turn to Deuteronomy 11. Because it's really a fascinating picture of what's being said here. By this early and late rains. In Deuteronomy 11.14. The Lord is talking and he says, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So that seems like that makes sense. Farmer, early, late rains. But you've got to see it in context. So jump up to verse 10. This is Deuteronomy 11, verse 10 says, For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but when we were talking about the fact that you may not even have to worry about your garden because the automatic sprinklers 
just come on and take care of your lawn and take care of your garden? That's basically what God just said. He said that at this point in time, the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt. In Egypt, you have the Nile River Valley or the, the plateau. It's a it's this whole area where the sediments of all of Africa come down on the, the large Nile River and it, it breaks out into this alluvial plain and you have this fertile land that is constantly watered. And with that water, you're in a situation where you don't ever have to worry about the water. There's fresh water coming down all the time. And God is saying, not like that. I've taken you out of Egypt where the water just came all the time and I've brought you to a land, the hill country of Judea, to Jerusalem, to the, the holy land of Israel where you're going to have to depend on the rains. You're not going to be able to just let your automatic sprinklers come on. You're going to have to lean into me and you're going to have to depend on me. And this is the concept here that when he says that, and he says, look at the farmer, take the farmer as an example, back into James, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. God is basically saying to the Israelites, to the Jews, to us, he's saying, I am taking you to a place where you are going to need me. I want you to catch that thought because it's going to be repeated throughout this entire passage. I am taking you to a place where you are going to need me. You are going to be dependent on me. You're in a place where water just comes down. I'm going to take you out of that place and I'm going to take you to a place where you're going to need me. This is not an unusual thought when God stops and says to Abraham, I'm going to ask you to leave Ur of the Chaldees and go to the place where I'm going to show you. And Abraham becomes the father of our faith. That whole story is built on this same premise. Do you know where Ur of the Chaldees was it was right between the Tigris and the Euphrates River where fresh water came down all the time that's where Abraham was living and God says to Abraham I want you to leave Ur and come to the place where I'm going to show you and where was this place this place he brought him to the same place where he would have to depend on the Lord for the rains to be able to get their food. So this concept, the early and the late rains, is God stopping to say, I'm going to bring you to a place where you need me. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that kind of bothers me a little bit. It's like, God, I like it when everything's actually smooth and calm. And he stops and says, no, I need you to lean on me, to depend on me, to need me. Well, let's go on to verse 8. And uh, then it says, you also be patient. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. This idea of establishing your hearts is, is the idea of strengthening your heart, of setting your heart, fixing your heart on a certain thing. So in this case, with our hearts and the idea of strengthening it or establishing it, this is the same phrase that's used when... When Jesus realized it was time for him to go to Jerusalem and to face the struggles and the suffering and everything that might happen there, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, that he did it just that way. Or when Jesus is talking about the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, how the rich man died and, and he is on one side of the chasm and, and, and Abraham is there with the poor man in heaven and they're, they're looking back and forth and it says that there was a chasm fixed between the 
the two. That word fixed is the same word here. This established, that's established, is not ever going to change. It's fixed. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. This is all the same word. Establish your hearts. This idea of being patient in such a way, it's not just, well, I'm going to try to be a little more patient today. It's this deep fixing that I will be this type of person, the type of person who is going to be dependent on the Lord and not what the matters of today are. If the consequences of the day, if the situations of the day, if the events of the day go my way, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be good. But if it goes bad, I'm going to lose it all. Instead of putting faith in your day, you're putting it in him, you're fixing it on him, you're establishing your hearts to be dependent on the Lord. So you also be patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Then verse nine, do not grumble against one another, brothers. We should just skip that verse. Let's go on to 10. Uh, We can't, can we? There it is. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now I need to tell you that as we jump into this one, um, the grumbling part happens all the time. Uh, I literally, I, I have resolutions to try to help me um, establish my heart and to, to be focused. And one of them is resolve never to speak carelessly of anyone where it will tend to their dishonor. And it's a difficult resolution for me to hold to. That I find things that I say all the time might put somebody else in a bad light. And, and it's my heart wanting to do it. I, whether I want to feel better about myself or I'm jealous of them or whatever it is, I find my mouth doing this constantly. It can't be me. It's just got to be my mouth. But this idea of grumbling against others, the way things are going right now in, in the world, the things about COVID, the things about our, our politics, our, our, our government, and the choices they're making, the fact that you're watching at home, I might have grumbled about the governor at one point in the last few months. Um, just maybe. I, I, I'm not sure. But the concept is, is that this just literally says, don't do that. Don't grumble about others. And don't grumble. Um, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. And then it makes this statement, behold, the judge is standing at the door. This idea that we should watch what we say, that's pretty simple. But then the reason for it is because the judge is right there. Now, I've got to give you an an illustration of this. Um, And I've got to be careful about it because I know that we're streaming online. And so there's a lot of you at home and your kids might be in the room. So I'm going to tell a story that involves one of those things that the married people do. Um, Kind of in the privacy of their own bedroom, that kind of thing, and and people have different words for it. And I've I've heard the phrase that, that sometimes people are talking about. Hey, uh, mom and I are going to have to to go to the room. Uh, would you or you the husband might say to the wife, uh, "Will you come into the bedroom with me? I need to fix something." <laughs> and, and that's what they say. And other people might use the phrase, and I've heard this, that, uh, oh, um, mom and I just need to go into the back room for a little bit and talk about Christmas. And we come up with these little code words for something that happens. Well, for Eugenie and I, sometimes it, you know, it just might be the word wrestling. You know, well, mom and I are just going to go wrestle around. You know, that kind of thing. I'm going to stop with this. This is getting, here's the story. One night, um, 
Eugenie and I are in the bedroom and, and whether we're fixing Christmas or whatever that might be, we're in the bedroom and one of us gets up afterwards and as they're going to the bathroom, I think it was Eugenie, she gets up and goes to the bathroom and, and there at the foot of the bed is our middle daughter Emily and she's laying there with her blanket right there at the foot of the bed. And so the natural question is, how long have you been here? How long have you been laying right there at the end of the bed? That question is, is one of those just impertinent or very important questions because you want to kind of play back everything that just happened. I probably shouldn't have told that story in church, but here we are. The concept of the judge being at the door is like that. It's that he's here, he's there, he's right there. And it's almost as if that, that he would stop at this moment when we stop and we grumble about others and grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Don't do that. So that you may not be judged. Because behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's right there. He can hear you. He is listening. I do this as a grandpa sometimes when I put the grandkids to bed. I'll put them to bed and knowing that if I've just got them all worked up, they're not going to go right to sleep. So I sit right outside the door and then I can hear him start to talk and whisper. I can hear you. Now you're talking, stop talking, and then they'll start getting out of bed, get back in bed, I can hear you. And this, I use it all the time and they're looking around, how does he know? Well, he knows because he's right there at the door. He's listening. It makes it that much easier for us. We should get this point that when we begin to grumble against others, God, who's doing a big story, a grand scheme about all of life going on, has created you and he's created the others. And he has a plan and purpose at play. And when we begin to grumble against others, recognize that the judge is right there at the door. Now, that might sound creepy to some of you, that God is right there listening to everything that happens. But the other side is you have to realize that he himself says, I am the door in John 10. I am the door, the coming and going, it is me. That what he's promising us is actually his presence. That he's here, right there with us at the door. He is the door. And in Revelation 3.20, he says, behold, I come to the, I'm at the door and I knock. And that concept of him knocking on the door is that he wants to be a presence in our life. He wants to be there. He wants to be a part of it. And this idea that God is there with us, even at the times when we would grumble, it's once again, this, this just a, it's a gift to us. Rather than seeing it as a bad thing, it's the idea that we would be dependent on him and we would know that he can hear us. He is listening. He knows what we're going through. He sees it. He's right there. So once again, we need to know that we are in a place where we need him and he's there with us. All right, we're gonna jump into the next uh, verse Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. So we've done the farmer as an example, and now we're jumping into the prophets as an example. And uh, if, if you don't have a Bible in front of you and you hear just that phrase, take the prophets, you might be thinking of investment banking or investments, you know, I'm going to put all my money into an account. Once it makes some, I'm going to take the profits. Or are you thinking about capitalism? We're not talking about those kind of profits. Take the prophets as an example is the idea of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Amos. And when we take the examples of those prophets who would be faithful about presenting the word of the Lord, 
that they oftentimes suffered for it, that there were difficulties for doing just that. And so as we look at it, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So if you want to know this, this whole thing of what does it mean to be steadfast, to be, have your hearts established, to, to be dependent on the Lord and go, I'm all in, Lord, I'm going to depend on you. He says, use the farmer as an example, that early and late rains, and also use the prophets because they too had to have patience and suffer because they would give the word of the Lord and oftentimes not see it. A classic example of this is Jeremiah. And in a, if you've got your Bibles again, it's a good idea to have your Bibles when you go to church. But as you look at it in Jeremiah 20, and we'll jump back to Jeremiah 20 really quickly, there is a story about a priest named Pasher. And Pasher the priest literally takes Jeremiah and he beats him and he scourges him and he puts him in the stockades. And the, and the stocks are basically those blocks where your, your hands are locked in, your head is locked in. And it literally is out by the Benjamin gate, out in public next to the temple where everybody's coming and going. And pastor the priest takes Jeremiah and he beats him and then he sticks him in the stocks to stay there all day, all night, out in front of everybody. He's just stuck there, totally embarrassed. Everybody comes and mocks him and everything else because he did what? Because he was dependent on the Lord and the Lord said, Jeremiah, I need you to say this thing. I need you to do this thing. Jeremiah, be faithful and do it. And Jeremiah was faithful and did it and he was put in the stocks and he was put into prison and he was thrown into a cistern and it happened over and over. What did he say that got him that? If you look forward just a couple of chapters in verse or chapter 18, we'll start with verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what put him in the stocks. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his will, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. The idea that the vessel was spoiled, that Israel was spoiled, that this was bad. They, they just looked at it and said, no, that's not a word from the Lord. They punished him. Look at what the Lord said. The Lord said, I'm just like that, that potter. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. You see, this story comes back once again, is that what happens is the potter has a plan, the potter has a purpose, and he takes the clay and says, no, I'm not going to make it into that, and he reworks it, and he makes it into something else and completely differently. I've had this happen in my life so many times, and one of the, the stories, and I've shared it here many times, but... I used to work at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and through a series of events, the Lord said, I'm taking you away from Hume. I had spent nearly 30 years in the Christian camping business and industry and ministry and working with kids. It's what I knew. I knew camping. And the Lord says, I want to send you to Seattle, and I want you to work with the homeless in a big city. And I was like, Lord, you haven't seen my resume. This, I, I've got nothing there. I can't do this. This isn't what I'm made for. I'm made for something else. And then this verse resonates, the vessel that he was making of clay, he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do, not to the clay. 
This is not about us and what we're planning and what we're thinking and what, the way we want the world to go, but it's a far bigger picture of what God is doing in the middle of this. So when it says, take the prophets who have suffered, they've suffered because they were faithful to what God said. What the potter said is, I'm going to do this thing. And many times they wouldn't see it in their lifetime. The prophecies would come, but they wouldn't necessarily be lived out while that prophet was still there. And they waited patiently and they suffered for that, but they were dependent on the Lord because they recognized the potter could do that thing that seemed good for the potter to do. That's who God is. Verse 11. Let's keep moving. In verse 11, it says, Behold, we consider those, uh, just lost my place. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And this idea here is uh, one of those that might cause a little bit of trouble in your heart. That as you read this verse, it just stops and goes, oh yeah, we know the story of Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you think, yeah, I know the story of Job. And what happened to Job, I wouldn't call compassionate and merciful. The, all that happened to him, and, and we're not even going to go through the story because I think you've all heard of the story of Job. His family dies, his, his crops and everything are destroyed. He literally gets boils all over his body. And he goes into this deep suffering and depression and everything just hammers down on Job's life. And in that, the scriptures stop and say, oh, you've seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And you're like, if that's compassion and mercy, I want none, none of it, right? So what is that? What is that? That would show up together talking about Job in that mix. Well, I think the answer is not, as some commentaries say, um, and this is my opinion, but, but when you have an opinion, it's because you think it's right. And so as I look at it, the, the commentaries often stop and say, well, yeah, but he was able to have kids later on and he had even more riches later on. As anybody who's lost somebody dear to them knows just simply having another child, if you've lost a child, doesn't just make it all better. It is a gift from the Lord that we might have a second child, but if you've lost a child, that grief is with you for your entire life. And I don't know of anyone who might call that compassionate and merciful. So the idea of just deferring it and going, well, Job went through all of this so he could have had that, compassionate and merciful in my book in that line would be that God wouldn't have touched him at all. But instead, we do know the story of Job. And the, what we know about the story of Job is that God actually chose Job because of his faithfulness, because of his steadfastness, because his heart was established to use him as an example for the rest of us. Here's the thing. You have heard of Job. This is amazing. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. So we can put it 2,000 years before the time of Christ. 4,000 years ago... This story happened to one man, and you know him on a first-name basis. 
Job. You know the story. I don't even have to tell the story. I was on the phone a couple of weeks ago with a young man who was going through some difficult times in his own life. He had begun to doubt and just have questions about God. And so he, we had crossed paths earlier in life. And so he picked up the phone and he called me and he said, Jeff, can I ask you some hard questions? Because I'm having some doubts about who God is. And one of his friends had shared with him, any God who's a good God would not allow bad things to happen. So if he's good and there's bad things, then clearly there can't be a God. Why would God do things? And literally my friend stopped and asked about this thing about Job. Like why would God do something like that to a guy who's his, his best? Like God even said that. And I said, great question. But here's the challenge. When you stop and think about what you've just said, you have to realize that you're ready to dismiss God because as if there was something that God forgot to hide. Like somehow this story got out and God wasn't able to keep this story quiet. Oh yeah, that time I really destroyed Job's life. I hope nobody ever hears about that. Just the opposite. It's God himself who says to Satan, Psst, come over here. Have you considered my servant Job? God himself is the one who literally looks down, sees Job's life, shares it with Satan and lays him out for that. And at that point, that's compassionate and merciful. The compassion and the mercy happens now, today and the last year and two years before, and 10 years before, all the way to 4,000 years before, that the millions, if not billions of humanity that know the story of Job have looked on it and take solace when they go through difficult times. When we look at it and we're going through the ringer, when bad things are happening to us, how many times do we turn to the book of Job for comfort and remind ourselves of the theology that is laid out in that book? Job's story was one where he suffered for our benefit so that we would have his example for us to go, oh, wait a minute. This is a God who may allow difficult things in my life, but he still has me. He's still at the door. He still cares about me. He knows me. And he uses Job as that example. He takes one of his greatest servants and says, I'm going to put you through the ringer. But it's going to be the mercy and compassion for millions, if not billions of people to follow who will know that story. And we do. To this day, I can walk up into a crowd and go, do you know the story of Job? And they're all, oh, yeah. He's the guy that suffered. He's the guy that had to have patience instead. People know this story because it has helped us in our time of grief. By the way, as you take these three examples of the farmer, the prophet, and Job, one of the compelling things about all three, all three of the examples are in service to other people. Their suffering, what they went through, all three of them are about other people. The farmer, he does all that farming. He doesn't need much but a small little patch for himself, but he does a huge farm because it feeds so many other people. The prophets come with a word from the Lord, not for them, but for everybody else. It's to serve other people. And then Job, when you look at his story, what is his story about? His story is about other people. It's about the suffering and God's faithfulness so that for thousands of years later, 
We can take solace and draw near to the Lord and know that the Lord is near to us, that he sees. He saw Job through it all. He was there. We know now that God knows what we are going through. He is aware of the, the problems in your life. He's aware of your health conditions. He's aware of, of the, the mental stress you're facing. He's aware of your children. He's aware of your marriage. He's aware of your work. He's aware of your finances. He's aware of it all. He's right there at the door. He hears you. He knows. And Job's story is an example of God's control on that. Um, just in case you think I might be stretching that, there's a, there's a verse in um, 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul is talking about the same thing and he answers that question like my friend had the question about how can a good God do these things? It's like when God opens up the ground and swallows 23,000 people as it talks about in 1 Corinthians 10. But Paul stops and says, we, um, we must not put Christ to the test. This is verse 9. As some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by this destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. They were written down for our instruction. The example's here. So if the farmer did it for others, the prophet has done it for others, Job has done it for others, it should make you think about Jesus who also suffered greatly for us, for others. This idea resonates through this passage that the examples we're being given is to be steadfast, to, to be faithful through these difficult times, recognizing that we need the Lord. And we are in a place that we can tell others how much they need the Lord. That we can talk about how much Christ suffered so that they too can see that they desperately need Christ. This is, especially because he's, the, the, the coming of the Lord is at hand. That it's all important that we recognize what God has done for us is something we should be sharing with others. The last verse of this passage is verse 12. And it simply says this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Once again, another passage that if you're listening to it and paying attention to it, your mind might have a little thought on that. And the first one, the one I had is, but above all, my brothers, do not swear. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you just talked about all this grand story, the purpose of the Lord in the previous verse. And, um, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then it says, but above all that, don't swear. You're like, wait, what a minute, is, wait, wait a minute, is this the same, are we in the same context here? Now, the swear, by the way, is not cussing, and that doesn't necessarily give you permission to cuss. The swear is actually the oath, like I solemnly swear. That concept is what's being said right here. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. Now, what's being said, and we've talked about it before, is this is in tie to, James is going back to the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes 
words and what Jesus said during Matthew 5, 6, and 7. So really quickly, we'll see that these words are from Matthew 5. So in Matthew 5, and uh, we're going to start with verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is footstool, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This idea here is, is James pulls it directly out of Matthew. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. I don't know if you caught it, but there's a difference in those two verses. The one says, don't swear by heaven and earth and let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's James. But in Matthew, it says, don't swear by heaven and earth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But there's a verse right in between verse 36. And it says, and do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. That's the answer to this entire passage. And you may think, what are you talking about? Why is that one verse it? I want you to understand what what Jesus is saying. These are the words of Jesus. He's saying, don't swear by heaven or earth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. But right in between is this one. Do not take an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, some of you that do hair dye think you can. But all you're doing is dyeing what it really is. You can't do it. I can't sit here and go, I want to be black-haired. Not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. My hair is going to remain what it is. You can't change it. I want it to be white. It says that the white hair is a sign of wisdom and I want to be wise. Make my hair white. Not going to happen. This concept is two words. You cannot. You cannot. I want you to take, take you back through this whole passage we've just been in in James. The farmer, he pulls us out of the fertile lands of the Nile River Valley and brings us to a point where we're dependent on the rain. We cannot make it rain. We cannot. And then the prophets, they come in and they give the word of the Lord. They're dependent on the Lord. They, they can't make that prophecy come true. They cannot. And then when it comes to Job, Job is literally at the mercy of God and Satan. His entire life, he has to just sit there and wait until that purpose and plan of the Lord plays itself out. He cannot. And then here, when it says, don't swear by anything, don't think that you can promise something, that you can say, I'll go into such and such a city and do this or to do that. You cannot say that. You cannot swear by anything. You cannot because you desperately need God. You need to understand that the God of the universe is already involved in his purpose and plan. The potter will do what he will. He is at the door. He sees you. He hears you. And he says, I need you to lean upon me. I need you to be dependent on me. You cannot. Above all, remember that you cannot. But he can. And he did. And he does. And he will. You cannot. But he can. Let me pray for us. Lord, I'm just so grateful for what you've done in my life. Even the times you've brought in difficult scenarios. 
the losses, the pain, the times of suffering, sometimes caused by me, Lord, sometimes caused by you. That those difficulties that come into my life, I would understand that they are your hand at work in my life. And one way or another, you are right there. You see it all. You hear it all. You know it all. Lord, for many of us right now that might be going through something really difficult, we would ask that you would allow us to hear you, to feel you, to recognize your presence in our life. And Lord, that you would reveal yourself in a tangible way for those who feel so distant from you. But Lord, even now as we pray, even now I cry out for the fact that any one of us might be an example to another. That we might see that that our suffering, that our life might point towards you. That Lord, that there might be others who don't know you. And they might hear of your character and your love and your grace, your compassion and your mercy. And recognize that you are a God who can be trusted, who is steadfast, who is never failing. And Lord, that we might be patient and wait for you, lean on you, and to be dependent on you. Lord, we cannot. And we know you can. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.